0: This program is sponsored by Amplified Peace.
1: Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to Amplified Peace. We are all about exploring how we can listen, learn, and live differently in this crazy world. Together, we want to discover the impact of empathy, the strength of unity, the power of love, and the beauty of humanity. Well, I am your host, Lisa Jernigan, along with my uh, partner in crime with Amplify Peace, Julie Bean. So, uh, we just want to jump in. We, you, we have so much to listen to today on this show. And just to kind of set the stage, Julie and I just finished this, a book that to say it's an understatement to say that it impacted us. And yes, indeed. so many conversations about this book, um, even when I was in Scotland and she's here and we're like, okay, and this part, and what did you think about this? And and it, we both have agreed that it's really going to inform our work as peacemaking, uh, with peacemaking, with Amplify Peace going forward. So we are so excited for this conversation because we want to be practitioners of, of listening and learning, and you're already helping us live differently. So with us today is Mark Nelson, who, along with Alan Hirsch, wrote the book, Reformation. Now, Mark has been engaged in full-time ministry for over 30 years. That has included youth ministry, ministry on a university campus, and for the last dozen-plus years, launched and led a faith community in Knoxville, Tennessee. And now, I understand, maybe transitioning into a new venture, where he can share with us a little bit about more. So, Mark, thank you for saying
0: yes to our show, and welcome. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the invitation. I'm excited to talk about this book. So, oh my gosh, yeah, there's so
1: much to talk about. So we're going to start the stage. Jules, you had a question because you're like, uh, how do we?
2: We just got yeah, to start, right? yeah. Let's just jump in. So where it all began. So Mark, what was the impetus for this book? How did you and Ellen team up together, and how did you and why did you decide to call it Reformation?
0: Yeah. So Ellen um, and I met. Oh, goodness gracious, a decade ago or so, and through him founding Forge America and me working with Forge America and Forge Knoxville and pastoring a church here in Knoxville and being involved with this. You mentioned Scotland. Alan and I even spent some time in Scotland. That's where I first got to know him. We were both there working with some churches in Scotland, and I got to know him and Deb very well. But the actual impetus of the book came from the fact that uh, about a decade ago, my son and I walked the Camino de Santiago, which is spiritual pilgrimage across Northwest Spain. And in the midst of that, uh, there was a lot churning in me. In the midst of that, there was a lot of questions that I had. And somewhere in walking that, I said, you know what? I think somehow I need to chronicle these feelings I'm having, what I'm experiencing. And, and when I got back home and I began to tell the story different places, uh, I began to realize this may be part of a book. And so Al was, uh, Alan Hirsch was at my house in November of 2014. I still remember where we were standing. And I said, I need some advice. Uh, I have this book idea. Alan, you've written many books. You've been very successful. He said, well, bro, he always calls everybody bro. Bro, we, uh, you, could, uh, you could write it and go with a traditional publisher. You could find somebody to write it with or, or whatnot. And we talked a little bit. He gave me these, these these ideas. You could write with this person, this person. And then he shared his story about experiencing Burning Man uh, in the, the desert of Nevada. And with my story of the Camino and his story of the Burning of Burning Man experience, we began talking. Uh, I took him to the airport, and on the way, way to the airport, he said, "You know what? Maybe we should write this book together." And I said, "Whoa. Okay. Let's think about this and pray about it and see where it goes." And so the impetus of the book came from both our experiences on those two different trails and then our relationship on top of that. And, and then in 2014, a very long time ago, we started writing it. And it took us about four and a half to five years uh, to, to write it. So it was a very long process.
1: Well, you know, we love stories. We're all about a story and an experience. And both of us have had a life experience that really just dis- we like to use the word it disrupted us, our, our heart, mm-hmm. our soul, in such a way where we're like, okay, I I'm not gonna be the same. And I have to start leaning in with curiosity and asking some more questions because I gotta know more about whatever it was. So it sounds like both of your experiences with Bernie Man and the Camino did this, that it disrupted you in such a way, you like you said, I this has to be a book, right? I have to write about mm-hmm. this. I have to tell something. So in the book, um you talk a lot about, about this reframing, not reformation, reformation. So can you just explain and just share with us, like, why do you think there is a need, based on your experiences, um, and you can even share, because we know you had some conversations on, on, the, on the Camino, but also just other conversations, but why do you think there is a need for us today to reframe the gospel message of Jesus, and in such a way that is more compelling to people that it's not just, oh yeah, I've checked that box, but it's like, it's a new way of living and living to the full.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I've been in vocational ministry for 36 years and youth ministry, you mentioned it earlier, youth ministry, campus ministry, church planning. And I have felt a calling, honestly, those entire 36 years when people would say, what are you called to? And, and I would respond with something like, I feel called to put new frames around an old picture. And the way you look at that, if, if you take a picture, you put a frame around it, you haven't changed the picture, but you've allowed the way that people see that picture. You, you freshen it up. You give it a different angle. You give it a different perspective. And when they see that new frame, they might give it a second, a third, a fourth look where they, they've stopped looking at it long ago. I believe that the frame doesn't change the picture. It just changes the way you see the picture. The picture that we have is Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That picture does not change. But I think we can put a new frame around that picture so they might give it a second thought, a, a third thought, um, to see it in a fresh and different way. When I was walking the Camino de Santiago, a spiritual pilgrimage, I'm, I'm using air quotes that your listeners cannot see, this spiritual pilgrimage of mine, I expected to meet spiritual people and have spiritual discussions. And that was, much to my surprise and chagrin, not the case at all. Uh, and especially when it came to me explaining what I did for a living, people didn't quite understand it. I would try to say, well, I'm a vocational minister. Oh, so you're a priest? No, nope, no, nope, not a priest. Well, what do you do then? And I said, well, I work at this church, and I lead people in the city center of Knoxville, and we take care of them, and I lead a service each week, and they go, oh, yeah, you're a priest. I said, no. And that was the end of our discussion. They didn't have a category for me. And then I began to struggle with the fact that here I am a professional Christian, as we say, someone who's paid to do this in vocational work. And yet I was having such a struggle at articulating what the good news of Jesus was and what it it was I was doing vocationally in answering this call upon my life to take care of people in the name of Jesus. And so in that struggle, I I call it a crisis of interpretation. I felt like, you know what, what's the issue here? The issue is not Jesus. The issue is not the message of Jesus. I think the issue might be my stewardship of that message. It might be the way that I am framing that picture. It might be the way that I'm presenting that picture. And so again, that that was the, the pain that was stirring in me. You talked about those moments where you never be the same again. You know, They're called sliding door moments or mm-hmm. inciting incidents. There's all these different phrases for it. I do believe that was an inciting incident for me. And I said, I have felt my whole life that I'm called to reframe the picture of Jesus. And here I am. And I don't even know how to articulate to these people what I do. And so the idea was, how do we take this picture of Jesus that the world has grown way too accustomed to? And I don't care if you're a believer or not. And give them a chance to see it in a fresh and new way. I love the movie Dead Poets Society, my favorite movie of all time. I'll argue with you if you don't like it. And there's a scene in there where, uh, the, the teacher played by Robin Williams invites the class to stand upon the desk. And he, one by one, they stand upon the desk. And he goes, look at the room, look at it from here. It, it's the same room, but you're, you're seeing it new. You're seeing it afresh because you're seeing it from a different angle. And I believe that's what we're called to do is to take this picture of Jesus, put a new frame around it, allow people to see it in a fresh and a new way. And if you ask me uh, to articulate to you, and people have asked this before, tell me why Jesus came. And you could give the spiritual answers of he came to seek and save the lost. All that's true. All that's right. I believe, actually, that Jesus came to this world to give people a picture of God that they had never seen or experienced before. Mm -hmm. I believe that's why he came. They had this view of God of what he was. They had this view of God as, as either deliverer or judge or whatnot. Jesus came, God in the flesh. And he did things, and he said things, and he loved people that had never been said, that had never been loved before. And he put a new frame around God. And he came to give people – you look at the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. You talk about a new frame around a picture. She, she was broken. And Jesus came in and said, I understand where you're broken. I understand that the man you're not with now – that you're with now is not your husband. And what he did was not judge her or condemn her. He unwrapped her wounds like a doctor unwraps a a patient's wounds. And he said, you've been in this dehumanizing cycle where you've been looking for love in all the wrong places and all the wrong people. And I'll tell you what, I'll give you a water that you can drink and you'll never thirst again. That woman was forever changed because Jesus gave her a picture of God and the love of God that she had never, ever seen or experienced before. I believe that's our calling. And so, to reframe the picture of Jesus, to reframe the love of God, the heart of God, I believe is all our calling. And the name Reformation is a made up word. If you know Alan Hirsch, he loves to make up words. We had such a struggle in how to title this book. We actually put it out on Facebook and said, Give us some ideas. And I wish I could tell you who the person was that gave us this idea. We said, We'll give you 10 free books if you come up with the name. And somebody did. And that's where we got the name, that's where the word came from but it's this idea of reframing the picture that never changes so that we might see it fresh and new and give us an experience that we've never seen before. That, that is what the book is about. Mm. It's so good. There's so, you're so
1: spot on in so much of what you're saying and we've gotten really good at reducing the, the good news of Jesus to some rules and things to follow and programs And, um, you know, it it, like you said, it's hard to really explain it because the good news is so big and it's so good. How do you really say that? So that word reduction, we've reduced it a lot. That is a term that you and Alan use quite a bit. Uh, Reductionalism is kind of a core theme uh, in the book. And you kind of start in that direction talking about that. Can you share more about how that has impacted even your personal uh, thinking and the, the, how you kind of laid out the rest of the book.
0: Yeah. So I love story too, uh, like you all do. And there's a lot of words used to describe uh, like the flow of a story. Um, the ones I use are setting and then conflict, uh, then ambition and then crucible and re- resolution. So in any story, good story, you have a setting where it describes it describes what frame you're putting the book in really. The next part you have is the conflict. What is it that has happened to cause the separation? Uh, then you have the ambition, where do we want you to go? The crucible, what new thing has to happen? And the resolution and how you play this out practically. The idea of reduction for us is the conflict. Uh, Thomas Torrance, a Scottish theologian, said, uh, we have a way that was the intended order, and we have the way that is the actual order. And there is a gap between those. And when we look at the world and we look at the message of Jesus, both how it's told and how it's lived, we believe there's a gap between how it was intended to be and how it is. That gap is the conflict. And so in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book, we talk about this reductionism and, and, and three specific things. We, we believe we've reduced God. Um, we believe we've reduced the gospel story. And then as a result, we believe our lives have been reduced. And when we talk about reduction, we're talking about uh, a God that is bigger than I can hold my hands out and describe, that we have shrunk down into the tiniest of boxes. Uh, and if you look look at the biblical story of Stephen, for example, Stephen is, is the first Christian martyr. He's murdered. Uh, he is confronted about the gospel. He tells the whole story of scripture, how Jesus fits into it. But if you ask people, well, why was he killed? Well, it's because he talked about Jesus. Nope. Stephen, I believe, was killed because he said, uh, you all think that God is contained in that building? And he is not. He's much bigger than that. That got him stoned. Um, We have become, uh, so often we have taken that story and we say, oh, yeah, I'm Stephen. I'm fighting for my faith. I'm a martyr of faith. No, 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 no. We're the ones with the rocks in our hands because we're the ones when somebody comes and says, okay, God is much bigger than you've made him in your little box. We like to throw the stones. And so what we tried to unpack was this whole idea that we have taken a God that is so big and we have shrunk him down. And to us, that's heretical. Uh, it's a heresy. Uh, let me let, actually, let me define what I mean by that. Cause most people think of the word heresy as speaking false truths. It's not, I'm going to use actually NT Wright's uh, definition of that. He said, great heresies do not come about by straightforward denial. They happen when an element, which may even be important, but isn't central, looms so large that people can't help talking about it, fixating on it, debating different views of it as though this were the only thing that mattered. Heresy is when you take one thing and make it the only thing. Mm -hmm. Heresy is when I salvation and say, I can put it on this napkin and that's all you'll ever need. If my God can be put on a napkin, he ain't my God. My God is much bigger than that. There's nothing, I have nothing against trying to explain and diagram and do all that and explain that. But my God is always bigger, always greater, always growing. And for us to get to a point of, of contentment um, just brings us to a point of reductionism. And, and we reduce mission to evangelism. We reduce uh, uh, following Jesus radically to just transferring information. Uh, that's the kind of reduction that in the book we say is the conflict that has caused this gap between the way it was intended and the way that it is. And and so we try to, to very fairly, we hope, very clearly, although a little meaty at times, try to explain what we believe that gap is. And then in the second part of the book, we try to address that.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. Mark, you know, when you talk about I love so many of the different examples and analogies that. That you have in there around reductionism, and you know the um, the. Uh, by the way, I love tofu. I'm a tofu eater. <laughs> I am. I am too. I am too. I had tofu <laughs> scrambled this morning. It was delicious. Uh, but that that comparison or that analogy with the tofu and the warhead candy, and I've never had warhead candy, but boom! I mean, that was I really got it, and. So what, what would you say is getting in our way in sharing the message of Jesus well, in, you know, including, I mean, that breathtaking mystery and the beauty um, and that, you know, that warhead candy experience versus the tofu. What's getting in our way?
0: Well, if you look at that analogy, and it's not it's Don Everett's analogy, by the way, of tofu and warheads. I want to make sure you give them credit. But uh, we have taken the gospel and we've allowed it just to soak up the flavors of everything around it. And it's lost its bite. It's lost its ability to um, to make us stand in awe and wonder of it. And, and to compare that to a warhead, you put a warhead in your mouth and you're either like, Oh my gosh, I see the world in color.
2: Something's mm-hmm. happened.
0: I've never seen the world or get this thing out of my mouth. Cause I cannot yeah. stand it. Mm-hmm. And so we have taken a gospel, I think, and again, I'm a tofu eater as well. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> excuse me. I was I was sharing some of this with some of my Seventh Day Adventist brothers and sisters, and they're big tofu eaters, and I had to apologize greatly because I wasn't <laughs> trying to criticize their meat, their diet plan. But um, I believe we have taken this message that should be a warhead that should take our breath away, that should cause co- cause us to see the world in different colors than we've ever seen it before, and we have reduced that. To something that, again, that we can ride on a napkin or that we can plug and play or that we can give you a doctrine and that's all you need. And we missed this encounter with with a living Jesus. And if you look in the scripture, everywhere Jesus went, they, they either rejected him to the point where they wanted to push him off a cliff or, or, or they accepted. So it was warheads to them. And so for us in our communication of the gospel, we are afraid to share a Jesus that is that radical because it would mess up our lives because um, we're afraid. And, And as a professional Christian, again, many people in my position who stand up front every Sunday and talk about the good news of Jesus. We're sometimes afraid that if we give the Jesus of the scriptures, that we're going to make too many people mad, and they're going to leave, and they're going to take their money, and that'll be my job. And what will I do then? And this church will close its doors. So there's a lot of fear behind why we don't, and it's just easier not to. If we can make Jesus fit into the life we've already created for ourselves, man, that's easy. Uh, again, Donald Everts, Don Everts, he uh, wrote a book called um, Jesus with Dirty Feet. And in that book, he tried to, it's a little tiny paperback. And uh, he wrote about what, what it's like for a skeptic to encounter Jesus. Well, before that book was published, he tells the story about how he had given a copy to his friend to read the draft of Jesus with Dirty Feet, this radical Jesus. And the friend had given it to a friend of his who had never, ever really heard the story of Jesus. He definitely wasn't a person of faith or anything like that. That friend brought the book back and read it. And he gave it to him. He said, "So your friend wrote that book?" He said, "Yeah." Did he? Did he get in trouble? (laughs) He's like, "Why?" Because the person he read about in that Jesus was so offensive and so radical, it didn't fit anything he thought religion and faith was supposed to be. Are we standing up on Sundays? Are we sitting around coffee uh, table drinking coffee? Are we in small groups? Are we having conversations? And are we giving a Jesus that is taking our breath away? Are we doing something that just soaks up the flavors around us? So, so that the Jesus that we present has the politics, has the economics, has the social ideas of the people around us? Because I don't see a Jesus that matches up with what we what we follow in America as the American way. I see Jesus who matches up with what we follow, that we are called to follow in the radical ways of Jesus. Amen. I mean, that's all. Amen
1: you know and is reading this it's like my own my own personal journey of, of Jesus I was born and raised in a in a Christian family and so I've known nothing else but Jesus but at the, at the same time I've realized in you know the past decade or so that really I was following a sterile Jesus a Jesus yeah. that I put in a box right that like what you're saying there's there's no warhead to to Jesus and I can explain him though I never could but we tried to like make Jesus in our own image that we can explain. And if something is outside of that, those parameters, then it can't, it can't exist. And so there's a term that you and Alan use in the book, and it's called holy restlessness. And you both kind of describe that, that really is like your heart search for God big enough to change everything. I know for myself, I've had to to really ask myself, do I really believe that God is big enough Mm -hmm. to do in my own life, to change the things in the world? We see so much in the world that's unjust, unjust, that's wrong. And you're like, can this ever change? And so uh, the question I think we each need to ask ourselves is, is God big enough? Can you just Mm -hmm. expound on that?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, the answer is yes. He is big enough. The problem is, is our approach to God. And and to go to your talking about how we kind of create him in, in our own image, the singer, songwriter, writer, Michael Card had this quote that I've used for years. Uh, we make you in our image. So our faith becomes idolatry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so when I think about my faith journey, uh, let's see how quickly I can do this. I, I was born in the church. I was three months old. I was baby Jesus. Mom and dad were marrying to us. You know, like yeah. I was literally there, by the way, once you play like the Lord of Lords, what are you going to do to play a shepherd? You know, my whole. <laughs> and from there. Over. right? Uh, yeah. But I grew up in the church, you know, and in second grade, I got this idea of Jesus because I won a prize because I memorized the books of the Bible for pastors that that Jesus loved me because I did good things. And then I learned a Jesus in high school that had to do more with my hormones and dating than it did about a relationship with Jesus. Then I learned a Jesus in college. Then I learned a Jesus in youth ministry, where all the parents wanted me to do is make sure the kids didn't drink or cuss or smoke, you know? Um, And then I I learned a, a Jesus when I was 30 that was full of grace that I'd never learned before. I'm 59 now, and I can retrace this for you. I won't do it, but I can retrace all the Jesuses I have known. I think the problem comes when we get a Jesus that we like and hold on to it, and then that becomes our idol, but that is not the Jesus that is big enough, and so I want to believe in a God, in a Jesus, and in a gospel that is big enough to handle all my problems, but I've got to be willing to open myself up to the mystery and the wonder of a Jesus who takes me to places I've never been before and teaches me things I've never, ever learned before.
1: That, that's, this is such a great way to kind of end the show in this conversation because what you've talked about is we have reduced him and we've taken all the, the warhead out of him where he's, you know, he's very docile and he, and we've made our faith something to be comfortable and convenient. And if it's not comfortable or convenient, then we're not all in. And yet that is not, where Jesus is inviting us into. That's not the journey he's inviting us into. And I always go back to, you know, when the church, the first believers, they were willing to die for their faith. I'm not even willing to cross the street sometimes for my faith. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so even I, you know, I hope from this conversation today that all of us and, and our listeners will like, go inside first and go, okay, what do I really believe about Jesus? Am, am I, Is it still, do I still have the wonder and the awe of him? Or am I like going, yeah, it's good. It's good. So I think that's a question for each one of us to ponder and think about. So our hope is that today you're, uh, we kind of piqued your curiosity and wanting Mm -hmm. to understand more about what Mark and Alan have discovered and share, and that you want to run to Amazon to get a, your own copy of this book. Um, Julie and I high, highly recommend it. Absolutely. And, and even other books by, the, by by Mark and Alan. It's just so good. The journey that you are on that you invite us into. And as always, thanks for being part of this podcast and the Amplify Peace community. For more information on living as a peacemaker in today's world, connect with us at amplifypeace.com, and you can follow us on all social media. Shalom.
0: This program was sponsored by Amplified Peace.
1: No matter how you connect with Allstate, you're in good hands. That's because you'll find our best auto coverage at our best price, online or by calling 888-ALLSTATE. Prices vary. Subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.